being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 36 imperial japan part 6 war zen corporate zen sugimoto goro and brainwashing today i'm recording from the shanxi province in northern china there was a zen master named daiun harada roshi he was the abbot of Hoshinji for about 40 years, and he made the monastery famous. He made the monastery famous as a training center for Zen Buddhism, which was known for its rigorous discipline. Dayun was also one of the leaders of Zen Buddhism most committed to supporting Japan's military and its wars. He created something he called Senso Zen, or War Zen. And he created that around 1915, when Japan entered World War I. He wrote a work called A Primer on the Practice of Zen. It has a whole chapter on war zen. The first part of the chapter was called The Entire Universe is at War. And he wrote, If you look around at all the phenomenon in the universe, you will see that there is nothing which is not at war. In the natural world, for example, plum seeds try to conquer the world for plums, while rice grains try to conquer the world for rice. The human world is the same, with politicians struggling with one another to conquer the political world, and merchants struggling with one another to conquer the business world. Dayun would argue that Zen Buddhism was not exempt from this type of struggle. He said that, in fact, without plunging into the war arena, it was impossible to know the Buddha Dharma. He said, it is impermissible to forget war for even an instant. Dear listener, you might be saying to yourself, this sounds metaphorical, like how jihad can refer to like a moral struggle, or maybe like certain statements Jesus made about the sword, right? Well, it wasn't metaphorical. In 1934, Daun wrote an article where he said, the spirit of Japan is the great way of the Shinto gods. It is the substance of the universe, the essence of the truth. Japanese people are a chosen people whose mission it is to control the world. The sword which kills is also the sword which gives life. Comments opposing war are the foolish opinions of those who can only see one aspect of a thing and not the whole. Politics conducted on the basis of a constitution are premature, and therefore fascist politics should be implemented for the next 10 years. Similarly, education makes for shallow, cosmopolitan-minded persons. All of the people of this country should do Zen. That is to say, they should all awake to the great way of the gods. This is Mahayana Zen. Even more explicitly, he wrote another article in 1939, saying... If ordered to march, tramp, tramp, or shoot, bang, bang. This is the manifestation of the highest wisdom of enlightenment. The unity of Zen and war of which I speak extends to the farthest reaches of the holy war now underway. Unquote. Let's look at a shining example of war Zen, a man who is widely honored as a god of war. That's right, we're talking about Lieutenant Colonel Goro Sugimoto. Sugimoto was born in Hiroshima Prefecture in, 19, in the year 1900. He joined the Imperial Army in 1918, and he was selected for Officer Candidate School, which he graduated from in 1921. 
he became the first lieutenant. He became a first lieutenant in 1924. Sugimoto saw action during the China incident of 1928, and he was even awarded a 100 yen award for his meritorious service, which was a lot more money back then than it is now, right? In 1931, he was promoted to captain, and shortly thereafter he became a company commander. Sugimoto was sent to Tianjin in northern China because of the Manchurian incident. He won the Distinguished Service Medal for creating Manchukuo in 1934, which also won him 400 yen for his actions. To be clear, he did not create the country of Manchukuo like on his own, right? That's the name of the medal. Sugimoto's career, while bright, was not necessarily unique. He was not a super soldier, right? His accomplishments and awards were somewhat common, or like not uncommon, for a military that had an aggressive foreign policy at that time. What did set him apart was his absolute reverence for the emperor, his many years of Zen training, and his writings, which were posthumously published under the title Great Duty. For example, in this work, there is a chapter called War, where he writes, The wars of the empire are sacred wars. They are holy wars. They are the Buddhist practice of great compassion. Therefore, the imperial military must consist of holy officers and holy soldiers. Like we talked about, this view was quite orthodox for Zen Buddhism. Sugimoto also said, War is moral training for not only the individual, but for the entire world. It consists of the extinction of self-seeking and the destruction of self-preservation. It is only those without self-attachment who are able to revere the emperor absolutely. Finally, Sugimoto wrote, The Zen that I do is not the Zen of the Zen sect. It is soldier Zen. The reason that Zen is important for soldiers is that all Japanese, especially soldiers, must live in the spirit of the unity of sovereign and subjects, eliminating their ego and getting rid of their self. It is exactly the awakening to nothingness, to the nothingness of Zen, that is the fundamental spirit of the unity of sovereign and subjects. Through my practice of Zen, I am able to get rid of my ego. In facilitating the accomplishment of this, Zen becomes, as it is, the true spirit of the imperial military. Sugimoto's Zen master, named Ekiju Yamazaki, he wrote of Sugimoto, I believe he achieved the unity of Zen and the sword. The unity of Zen and the sword, you say? We will get back to that at a later date. Sugimoto was promoted to major in 1937. He was sent to northern China yet again. While he was there, on September 14, 1937, his battalion engaged the Chinese army in a battle in the Shanxi province. Sugimoto had led his troops into battle when an enemy, an enterprising Chinese soldier, lobbed a hand grenade right behind him, and that grenade exploded. Now, we have the story of his death as told by his Zen master who had received reports of Sugimoto's death directly from the comrades serving with him. And I quote, A grenade fragment hit him in the left shoulder. He seemed to have fallen down, but then got up again. 
Although he was standing, one could not hear his commands. He was no longer able to issue commands with that husky voice of his. Yet he was still standing, holding his sword in one hand as a prop. Both legs were slightly bent, and he was facing in an easterly direction towards the Imperial Palace. It appeared that he had saluted, though his hand was now lowered to about the level of his mouth. The blood flowing from his mouth covered his watch. From long ago, the true sign of a Zen priest had been his ability to pass away while doing Zazen. Those who were completely and thoroughly enlightened, however, could die calmly in a standing position. This was possible due to Samadhi power. Unquote. Though Sugimoto was an adherent of the Rinzai sect of Zen Buddhism, both the Rinzai and the Soto sects heralded Sugimoto's achievements as a god of war. Of course, so too did the imperial army and the Japanese government. His work, Great Duty, became a bestseller, and his comrades went on to write books about him. But Sugimoto's greatest impact was not on the Zen masters or the generals or the bureaucrats. His greatest impact was on the Japanese youth. Middle schools across Japan read his book in book clubs and study circles throughout the war. Especially by 1943, when the deferments for students ended. Now, mobilization of youths took place through quotas of youth volunteers for the Manchuria-Mongolia Development Youth Patriotic Units, as well as the infamous Kamikaze Units. A Japanese historian named Ienaga Saburo, who, incidentally, took a ton of flack and was sued and censored for his insistence on talking about Japanese war crimes. This historian, Ienaga, described this period, saying, Made responsible for filling the quotas, teachers pressured the children directly by saying, Any Japanese boy who doesn't get into this holy war will be shamed for life. The teachers would visit a student's home and get his parents' tearful approval. Many boys in their mid-teens became youth pilots and youth tankers, or volunteered, quote-unquote, for service in Manchuria and Mongolia. These rosy-cheeked teenagers were put in special attack units and blew themselves up, crashing into enemy ships, unquote. Such is the legacy of Goro Sugimoto, who was posthumously promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Oh, there is another legacy, too, I suppose. There was a manga and anime writer, critic, and lecturer with the same name, Goro Sugimoto. If anyone has seen On Cinema at the Cinema, or even knows about it, this Sugimoto was almost like a Greg Turkington character, in that he collected over 20,000 films. He just filled his house with tapes which were then also lost in a fire. This Sugimoto was also an admitted pedophile. He called himself the Lewis Carroll of Japan. Like Lewis Carroll, he proposed marriage to a number of underage girls. Again, like Greg Turkington, Sugimoto cut down on his clothing, food, and shelter in order to buy and store more films. At a certain point in his life, he was only eating cup ramen, and his friends said that he actually died due to the conditions he was living in from this mania for film collecting. 
History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, right? Now, by the 1930s on, multiple Zen Buddhist sects promoted war. Dr. Kurebayashi Kodo, president of the Komazawa University, wrote an article called The China Incident and Buddhism. He wrote this after war broke out with China in 1937. In this article, he laid out a Zen Buddhist just war theory. He said, It goes without saying that the North China incident is a war on behalf of justice. Not only that, but all of Japan's wars since the Sino-Japanese War have been such wars. Should there be further wars in the future, there is no doubt they will also be just. Unquote. During wars, of course, Zen Buddhist priests would hold special religious services, which were supposed to ensure victory in battle. And, you know, I'm not going to, like, rake Zen Buddhism over the coals for having chaplains in the army, right? I mean, that's no better or worse than any other religion. The special religious services to ensure victory in battle, that was also a practice in Mahayana Buddhism, before it even came to Japan, so it was also not a uniquely Zen Buddhist practice. So, while this series on Japan is not approaching post-war Japan yet, in fact, we're not technically in World War II yet, but I think it would make sense to ignore that and trace the post-war legacy of Zen Buddhism in Japan, at least for a little bit, right? Now, it goes without saying that Japan had to face some very harsh realities upon their defeat in World War II. Anytime you conflate religion with imperial ambitions, and then those ambitions fail, well, that naturally creates some pretty stark spiritual chasms, right? Luckily, D.T. Suzuki had the spiritual wisdom and insight to take a long collective look in the mirror and place the blame squarely on those who were truly responsible. That's right. Adherence of Shintoism. According to Suzuki, Shinto was a primitive religion that lacked spirituality. Those factors had led to Japan's excessive nationalism and military control. The solution, according to Suzuki, was quite simple. Just do away with Shinto. To be fair to Suzuki, he did later write a more honest assessment. He said, This is not to say we were blameless. We have to accept a great deal of blame and responsibility. Both before and after the Manchurian incident of 1931, all of us applauded what had transpired as representing the growth of the empire. I think there were none amongst us who opposed it. If some were opposed, I think they were extremely few in number. At that time, everyone was saying we had to be aggressively imperialistic. They said Japan had to go out into the world both industrially and economically because the country was too small to provide a living for its people. There simply wasn't enough food. People would starve. Unquote. Again, that's not really an apology. It's not an honest assessment of Imperial Japan's actions. They were not going to starve without invading other countries. Though, to be fair, I think they did say that. Suzuki continued, writing, I have heard that the Manchurian incident was fabricated through various tricks. I think there were probably some people who had reservations about what was going on, but instead of saying anything, they simply accepted it. To tell the truth, people like myself were just not very interested in such things. Unquote. 
Which again, like this is the understatement of the century. Nor would I characterize it as a trick. Like 9-11 was not a trick, right? Like a major false flag attack causing a massive war is not a few hijinks, right? Suzuki is honest enough to say that he was not interested in whether or not the Manchurian incident was a trick, but he is not honest enough to interrogate himself as to why. To that end, Suzuki never writes any regrets or apologies for Japan's colonization or war crimes. Speaking of which, Japan as a, as a government has never really acknowledged or apologized for the vast majority of their crimes. The Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, General Douglas MacArthur, in his vast wisdom, chose not to exact apologies in most cases. And would you guess that a lot of the same calculations that the United States did with Nazi Germany were applied in Japan? Basically, the calculus was to let the corrupt elites stay in power as long as they were friendly to the United States and stayed violently anti-communist. There is actually a very, very interesting history to this, which I hope to get to in a future episode. But keeping it focused on Zen Buddhism in or religion in general, in 1967, Japan's largest Protestant organization, the United Church of Christ in Japan, they issued a statement titled, Confession of Responsibility During World War I, World War II, meaning that Japanese Christians apologized to their victims a good 20 years before any Zen Buddhist sects did. To this day, none of the Rinzai, Rinzai sects' branches have apologized. The first Zen Buddhist sect to make an admission of war responsibility was the Higashi Honganji branch of the Shin sect. They did this in 1987. Next was the Nishi Honganji branch, which issued a statement in 1991. In 1992, the Soto sect issued a statement of repentance, apologizing for their wartime role. Some observers have suggested that the Rinzai sect has not apologized because their complicity was arguably greater than the other sects. Although no Rinzai organization has made any formal statements, a prominent Rinzai priest Hirata Seiko wrote, Just as the Pacific War can only be seen as a reckless undertaking that simply reflected the military leader's ignorance of the international situation, so too the Zen priesthood can be faulted for its ignorance of the international situation at the time of the Pacific War. Which again, I mean, I'm not exactly demanding that these sects grovel, but that is not even really an apology, right? <laughs> also, lest you think that the economic base doesn't drive literally everything, there is even an economic base reason, arguably, why the Soto sect apologized and the Rinzai sect didn't. It all goes back to medieval Japan, when the Rinzai sect became a major landholder, while the Soto sect found benefactors in the more spread-out provincial lords. The Rinzai sect was informally called Rinzai of the Shogun. Because they held so much land, they were, like, powerful, in the same way that, like, the Catholic Church was a major landholder in many countries, right? 
Conversely, the Soto sect was called Soto of the Peasants. There was literally a difference in the social classes between the two sects, at least historically speaking. After the Allied occupation brought liberalism and democracy back to Japan, and imposed sweeping social reforms, as a result, militant labor unions grew in power. The business community then used Zen Buddhism as a method to restore discipline in the workforce. And of course, when I say restore discipline, I mean restore their control over the workforce, right? In the 1950s, companies like Zaibatsu paid Zen Buddhist priests, Zen Buddhist sects, to run training programs for their corporate new hires. These training programs were very, very interesting. Some of these programs involved sending their corporate recruits to monasteries for a whole month where they were subjected to what I am entirely comfortable with calling brainwashing. And like, I'm not being hyperbolic. Like, if you choose to join a monastery and become a monk, like, and you know what that is, all power to you. I don't think that monks are brainwashed, per se. But if your employer sends you to one where you have no choice in the matter, and then you are forced to get up at 3.30 in the morning, eat only rice gruel, and then sit all day and meditate, I'm sorry, that's brainwashing. And if you lose concentration, a monk would hit you with a wooden stick. I'm sorry, like, that's brainwashing. And like I've said, I'm not being hyperbolic. These training programs were explicitly made to instill endurance and to make new recruits into blank sheets of paper. Like, that's literally what they said. This is what Zaibatsu wanted from their new hires. Endurance and to be a blank sheet of paper. Which is, coincidentally, exactly what the Imperial Japanese Army wanted from their soldiers. Now... A man named George A. DeVos came to Japan to study these techniques in order to study these Zen Buddhist corporate training programs. During World War II, DeVos had actually studied Japanese as he was part of army intelligence. Real spy shit! After, though, he became a professor of anthropology, which I believe he was a professor when he came to Japan to study these techniques, he was a professor of anthropology at UC Berkeley. DeVos was also, later I believe, the director of the Ford Foundation's Japanese Personality and Culture Research Project. As a side note, DeVos also testified for the prosecution in the case against Sirhan Sirhan, in case the whole brainwashing angle wasn't clear enough. Also, for any of my enterprising listeners, who have a taste for research, if you can prove whether or not George A. DeVos is related to Betsy DeVos, man, I would give you a shout out. Lord knows what else. <laughs> I spent some time trying to figure this out, but now I am going to address the whole Japanese work ethic myth in future episodes, but I guess I can do a little bit of it now. And as fun as it can be to joke about national character, like Lord knows I've done it with Germans and Brits, and it's fun. I think a certain amount of it is harmless, but like, I fundamentally don't believe that there is such a thing as a national character. I think most of that is made up. 
at best it's made up and at worst it's like a thin veneer over like race science in like you know hr friendly clothing and the myth that the japanese are very hard workers like i'm not saying they're not but like the japanese don't work that much out of some inherent work ethic or national character or god help us like racial quality the japanese work that much because their labor unions were crushed like i will definitely elaborate on this in the future but zen buddhist corporate training camps show one angle to how this was accomplished and as you might expect there were critics of corporate zen just as there were critics for militaristic zen in prior decades I'm particularly interested by this guy named Katsuhira Sotetsu, who was actually a volunteer for the kamikaze units when he was a youth. He was never sent on a kamikaze mission, despite begging his commander to go. He wrote, Without entertaining the slightest doubt, I believed I should die for my country, killing even a single enemy. I now recognize that, as a priest, there could be no greater contradiction than this. I will carry this contradiction with me to the day I die. Sotetsu went on to become the head of the Nanzenji branch of the Rinzai sect. He committed suicide when he was 61 years old in 1983. In 1988, a posthumous book of his writings came out, and this book has one of the best titles I've ever heard, Enlightenment of a Pickle-Pressing Stone. In this book, he wrote, of late, there has been a Zen boom, with various companies coming to Zen temples saying they wish to educate their new employees. But it is clear what kind of education they are seeking. They want to educate their employees to do just as they are told. They claim that Zen is good at this. However, their claim is a bunch of rubbish. Zen is not as paltry as all that. It is not so small-minded as to restrict a person to such a limited framework. This said, the responsibility for having sanctioned such a Zen boom lies with the Zen temples themselves. Unquote. I do think it's interesting and good to hear a perspective criticizing this from someone who loves Zen Buddhism. Right now, Zen Buddhism's promotion in the United States is a whole other story and a very, very interesting one. But that could be another episode for another day. Zen Buddhism continued to be popular with Japan's military, specifically their self-defense forces now, right? Another Zen master, Omori Sogen, he wrote a book in 1966 called Sword and Zen. In it, he wrote, Sword and Zen are one. Zen is the sword of the mind, while the sword is the Zen of the sword blade. <laughs> For a warrior to discharge his duties, he must necessarily clarify the origin of life and transcend and transcend life and death in order to reach the absolute realm. This is the reason the destiny of the sword is inevitably connected to Zen. The thing about Sogen is that he had some very interesting connections. He enjoyed the patronage of Mitsuru Toyama and the Toyama family. For those who don't remember, I think I've introduced Toyama in many episodes. He was the head of, like, not one, but arguably, like, well, he was the head of the Dark Ocean Society. He had a hand in the Black Dragon Society. And, 
You know, those have been described as the advance guard for Japanese imperialism, molding public opinion in favor of aggression. What's more, Sogen was the spiritual mentor to Toyama. And we actually have a rare letter from Sogen to Toyama where he wrote, Since ancient times there has never been a person who starved from doing the right thing. If you are doing what is right, heaven will surely provide food. Therefore, even if you starve and die, do the right thing, unquote. Which, like, first of all, that's utter horseshit. Tons of people have starved to death while doing the right thing. Second, that's very lofty spiritual advice to give to the head of a secret society that ran assassins, drug dealers, terrorists, blackmailers, and strike breakers. And we know that Sogen was close to the Toyama family, too, because... Toyama's son, Ryusuke, served as an advisor to Sogen's martial arts hall. Now, Sogen went on to establish an international dojo, an international Zen dojo in Hawaii. He would help export Japanese martial arts to the United States. Much more on that to come, too. If you want to have a good time, just Google the Chozenji International Zen Dojo in Hawaii look at it, look at the people who have gone to it, and meditate on that for a while. Now, I can hear you asking me, Jimmy, Jimmy, was this actually Zen Buddhism? And if you were to ask me that, I would say, I am not a Buddhist, but I can quote Brian Dyson Victoria, who is a Zen Buddhist. He's a Zen Buddhist priest. Victoria wrote, Advocates of the unity of Zen and the sword, such as Takuan, Shoshan, and D.T. Suzuki, have taken the very real power emanating from the concentrated state of mind arising out of Buddhist meditation, that is, Samadhi power, and placed it in the service of men who can, in the final analysis, only be described as hired killers especially when viewed in the light of the innumerable atrocities perpetuated by the Japanese military during the Asia-Pacific War, including the systematic, institutionalized killing and raping of civilians. D.T. Suzuki's statements that, quote, the enemy appears and makes himself a victim, unquote, or that, quote, the swordsman turns into an artist of the first grade, engaged in producing a work of genuine originality, unquote, and so forth, must be clearly and unequivocally recognized as desecrations of the Buddha Dharma. As we have amply seen, Suzuki was far from being the only one to say or write such things. Experienced practitioners of Zen know that the no-mind of Zen does in fact exist. Equally, they know that samadhi, i.e., meditative power also exists. But they also know, or at least ought to know, that these things in their original Buddhist formulation had absolutely nothing to do with bringing harm to others. On the contrary, authentic Buddhist awakening is characterized by a combination of wisdom and compassion, identifying oneself with others and seeking to eliminate suffering in all its forms. Thus, the question must be asked, even though it cannot be answered in this book, how is the Zen school to be restored and reconnected to its Buddhist roots? Until this question is satisfactorily answered and acted upon, 
Zen's claim to be an authentic expression of the Buddha Dharma must remain in doubt. Unquote. Let's recap for today. We can see how Zen Buddhist priests like Daiun said, tramp, tramp, bang, bang, and said that that was the manifestation of enlightenment. We saw how Goro Sugimoto, who was the model for countless Japanese middle schoolers, strove to follow Zen. He called Japan's imperial wars holy wars. He was blown up by a Chinese grenade and turned into a martyr. His Zen master said Sugimoto achieved the unity of Zen and the sword, which I suppose might be true. And they used his example as fodder to convince kids to carry out kamikaze attacks and become fodder themselves. We saw how many different Zen Buddhist priests argued that they were engaged in just wars. We saw how D.T. Suzuki failed to understand the root causes or effects of Japan's imperialist wars, how he blamed Shintoism of all things, and he failed to interrogate his lack of interest in the Manchurian incident being a false flag attack. Man, it sure would be really bad if, like, any very important thinkers in our society failed to have enough interest in major false flag attacks in our day, right? That would be truly depressing. We saw how various Zen Buddhist sects apologized for their wartime complicity, which, like, I think that's pretty cool. I'm not going to say it's not. But then we saw how the aristocratic Rinzai sect did not apologize. We saw how the Zaibatsu and corporate Japan used Zen priests and monasteries to brainwash their workers. We saw a spook, an academic spook no less, George A. DeVos studying these techniques, which were absolutely brought over to the United States. There is quite a bit to be said about the corporate Zen being spread around, divorced of the religious aspects, right? Turned into a spiritual technology, also like in its most neutered form, arguably. But then you also see weirdos like Jack Dorsey, the the former Twitter CEO, probably brainwashing himself with meditation. It's interesting to think about. And we saw how Sotetsu, like, I'm a big fan of him. He wrote Enlightenment of a Pickle Pressing Stone, and he critiqued corporate Zen trying to control their workers with Zen Buddhism. We saw how a lot of the most militant and warmongering Zen priests have spooky connections, like Sogen and his relationship to the Toyama family. At the end of the day, though, there is good and bad in Zen Buddhism, like with anything, and I find things to admire and to hate. I mean, there's clearly power in Zen Buddhism, otherwise it wouldn't be effective, right? And I don't have a problem with Zen Buddhism per se, but... As William James said in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, we learn more about a thing when we view it under a microscope, as it were, or in its most exaggerated form. This is as true of religious phenomenon as of any other kind of fact. The only cases likely to be profitable enough to repay our attention will therefore be cases where the religious spirit is unmistakable and extreme. And so it is. For sources today, of course, I used Brian Dyson Victoria's books Zen at War, Zen War Stories, and Zen Terror. 
as well as a number of online articles on Goro Sugimoto, as well as his namesake, the manga pedophile. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon. It's a good value. You should subscribe. Now I need to be on my way to the Guma Prefecture. See you next episode, and God bless.
Yeah.